there are places that I work in which I get a lot of value, and you know they can replace me tomorrow, and they would go on fun. And another place that you're like, I'm doing all this for you, and I'm getting nothing out of it. There's that dynamic as well. But to be in a place that needs you as much as you need it is a really great environment for me. Going to an Ivy League school was somewhat of an insurance policy in case Joseph Marqueso decided to let go of his dream of becoming an opera conductor. When his dream didn't change, it became a bit of a liability as it disconnected him from the musical world for a number of years. Ultimately, he reconnected in just the right way to fulfill his professional dreams as well as the personal ones that seemed even less likely to come true. Find out how matching your value to someone else's needs and vice versa can keep you content if you let it on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with Joseph Marqueso, and we are going to talk about how one conducts themselves and others through different periods of life and creativity. So, Joe, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So, we start this the same way, asking the same two questions of all of our guests, and they are these. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Gracious. Mm. Gracious. When I was in college, who was I? I, I I'll only paraphrase it, but um, when I think of questions like this, I, I'm reminded of a, of a quote that autobiography is only to be trusted if it reveals something disgraceful because uh, viewed from the inside, life is only a series of defeats. And uh, I think about that quote a lot, I've kind of linked it with, I've been having this issue of people asking me how I am and not really being able to give an answer that encapsulates that mm. earnestly. Mm -hmm. Not because I, I have any suicidal ideation or uh, I'm depressed, but um, when, you, when you evaluate yourself, at least uh, my bias is always, am I letting myself off too easily? Mm. If I look back at who I was at, at any point, uh, am I going to romanticize it? Am I going to try to focus on the good things or at least pass over the the worst things? And I, I know that when I look back at, at periods, even periods that objectively were painful, I know that I don't, I, I, I cannot recreate the pain of that experience. I, can, I only look back at the experience and fondly. Like at Dartmouth, I didn't stay for my graduation. I, I, I couldn't wait to leave. But when I look back at Dartmouth, I, I think of only the most wonderful experiences and amazing times. Obviously, now that I'm a parent, I'd love for my child to go. But I know, I mean, I have the evidence. I know that I didn't go there. I know that I couldn't wait to leave. But I can't, I can't recall that feeling. Yeah. And when you kind of objectively say, I know I couldn't wait to leave, was it so much leaving the experience you were having or, wow, I just want to get to the next chapter or both? I, I think it was both. I, I know that the fatigue that accrues, especially when the the last part of, uh, of being there is 
is a combination of uh, it's like formulaic. There's a been there, done that, and then a lot of preparation for rituals and exper- I mean, my parents weren't going to come. I didn't want them to come. I uh, just wanted to put all my stuff in a bag and get out. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but the person that I was when I went there, in, in many ways, is, I mean, I was a music major. I knew that I wanted to work in opera. I, I, the, the things that I'm doing today are, are a straight line from what I wanted to do in, in those days. But that wasn't something you developed at Dartmouth. No, no. That was something that had been a part of your youth, right? Since elementary school, late, since about seventh or eighth grade. Since I knew, like, what... I I learned about opera, I I guess, in about sixth or seventh grade. And once I figured out what a conductor did, especially about opera, that once I knew that that was a thing, that was something that I wanted to do. And going to Dartmouth was not really the step that you would take if that is something that you wanted to do. Right. So how did you find yourself there? Good question. I spent many summers there. Part of At the time, it was the Adidas tennis camp. And I, I, in fact, I spent a lot of time in the dorm that I ended up moving into. It would. Oh, my gosh. And so I didn't want to visit schools. And I was familiar with that school. And I really loved the, the physical environment of it, which is all I, I knew about it. So I applied to only music schools and Dartmouth. Uh, I didn't apply to any school in New York because at the time I had, it was similar to I wanted to get out of New York. I was sick of New York. You grow up in a place and you think that all the other places are like that place. You think New York is what a big city is. All big cities are New York. My mother's English, so I, I spent some time in London. And if, if all you know is New York and London, you think that that's what cities are. And so I was uh, very anti-New York, and I didn't want to stay in New York. So I applied. Dartmouth was certainly the most impressive school that I got into. And uh, also I thought, well, if I, didn't, if I wanted to change my mind or wanted to do something else, mm-hmm. better to have this experience than to have a music experience. Right. Of course, if you don't change your mind, that, that, that calculation is, uh, is a little different. Right. Less impressive. Uh, in general, the what if and keeping options open is something that uh, I, I'll generally gravitate to no matter how sure I am in this instant of what I want. Okay, so that probably uh, informs the all your stuff's in a plastic bag and you're leaving campus. Are you still in the keeping options open mindset? No. No. Okay. No. So as you left, who did you think you would become, either short-term or long-term? Who did I think I would be after I left? That's Mm -hmm. the question. Mm -hmm. I think I was pretty daunted when I graduated about all of the things that I would have to make up for, for going to Dartmouth and removing myself from the music scene. Mm. I would say at the time, I probably had pretty... I say low expectations. I mean, I don't think that I was a, a different person. I don't think that my self-conception changed from graduation. But um, I think that I recognized the consequences and uh, probably exaggerated the negative consequences and underappreciated the positive consequences. Mm-hmm. 
and I try to, to spend my time finding a way to make up for having been out of the musical element for that time. And probably it took me many years. I worked in community theater in New York. Uh, I worked at a small opera company that had a very busy season. Many, many performances, many, many, many more than um, today. I mean, the opera world today is, again, different from what the opera world was when I graduated. And I made a, a, a commitment that I would work at this opera company until I had conducted every opera that's they did. They would do a when when the season came, which I had already conducted every opera. There were in those days they did six. They did twelve performances of six operas. So each opera got twelve performances. When that season came, that um, I had done every one. That was going to be my last season. I don't know what I would do next, but picking up a thread here, I was I was fed up with doing that. But I didn't know what I was going to do next. So I guess um, being fed up with where I am and what I'm doing turns out to be an, an engine of, of some sort, knowing that this can't go on, but uh, I don't know what the next step is. And in this case, the next step was going to San Francisco. They had opened a conducting program. It just started that year. And my mom invited me to San Francisco, so I went to visit her. And I took one of the days to, to look at their conservatory. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll apply and I'll see what happens. So they accepted me. I moved to San Francisco. I was there for two years. Also, couldn't wait to leave when it was done. A theme? Mm -hmm. I, at that point, I was in my early 30s. So um, even though I was a, a graduate student, I... I was surrounded by a lot of people who were younger than me. That was the first time that I, I considered myself an older person. In opera, obviously, opera is an old person's thing. And when uh, from college, everyone was my age. When I went to the opera in New York, everyone was older than me. And then when I went here, all of a sudden, everyone was younger than me. And that dynamic felt artificial to me. And I wanted, I was, when it was done, I was done. And I was happy to go. I did make many friends. I met my future husband there. And so, again, I look back at that time and it's all great, but I know that I was sick of it and I wanted to go. Yeah, because even though you were taking this conducting degree, you had already been a conductor. So when you said that you'd been at the company in New York, you were in a role as a conductor yeah. and working yeah. through all of those operas. So you were almost in a different phase as many of your colleagues, I would imagine. Exactly. For me, the benefit was having a way to connect to the music scene right. in the Bay Area. And then after I graduated, I got an email to be assistant conductor at Opera San Jose. And in, in there, the assistant conductor conducts performances. So I accepted and I went there. And when I saw what the company was and the theater that they performed at and the orchestra that they had, I was, you know, blown away, and I was like, this is the most amazing place. This is my place. I want to work here. And from 2007, I worked there as much as I could. I created the audition system that we have today. I, I just found many ways to be useful. It's It was a nice dynamic of, of knowing that as valuable as something is to you, you can be as valuable to it. 
and you don't get that kind of balance a lot. Some uh, there are places that I work in which I get a lot of value, and you know they could replace me tomorrow, and they would they would go on fine. Mm-hmm. And no, there are places that you're like, I'm doing all this for you, and I'm getting nothing out of it. There's that dynamic as well. But to be in a place that needs you as much as you need it is a really great environment for me. And so I threw myself into that. And in 2014, I finally became the music director there. At the same time, through our mutual friend, John Churchwell, I started working at San Francisco Opera, which was a great world-class opera company that was the, the best education of all the educations, at least practically, mm-hmm. about what it meant to work in opera and something that I needed because um, to take over a musical organization like Opera San Jose, you you need to have some experience with what is larger than that and beyond that, to have some idea of where to take it and what to expect from it. And those two places really became my home musically. and. I was very lucky to become music director there because a typical uh, musician is someone who's traveling in places mm-hmm. from here to there and stays in hotels and whatever. And that would have been a very big obstacle to have a family and to uh, be settled. And that fortunately was not the case. I was able to live in one place and plan my year to a certain degree, however I wanted it, and to spend time a lot with my friends and my family. Was the family always in the cards for you? In many ways, I, I'm a late bloomer. As the fact, you know, I I have a kid now. I had one at 45, which is also the age that my dad had one. Which is, me too, well, actually. Not just one, me. The one, the old. The one. <laughs> it's hard not to draw parallels when events happen that, that, that seem similar to events in the past. And um, so you got to be mindful that that was a thing, but... At the same time, my path to 45 and having a child is different than a path for him, especially because for most of my life, I ruled out the idea of having kids because it didn't seem like something that could be accommodated with uh, not only being uh, a gay guy, but also um, the possibly peripatetic life of a musician traveling around doing stuff like that. Yeah. So, Joe, I am lucky because I have had a little taste of being inside the opera world. So I understand what a conductor does and I understand what a music director does. But kind of for those who don't, you now have both roles in different places and one in the same as well, I guess. But tell me, what does a conductor do and what does that whole life cycle look like for a conductor? Like when you're first hired by a company and, and kind of time frames and all those things. And then also kind of contrast that with what a music director does. So strictly speaking, the conductor is um, the person who, at least specifically in opera, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, opera. I mean, a symphony is slightly different. The time scales are different and stuff like that. But in, uh, an opera conductor in a place like San Francisco or, or San Jose, the, the conductor arrives about a month before the opening night. And he or she or they conducts rehearsals with the piano and with the singers, with props in a room f- for the rehearsals. We, they don't rehearse with the set and they don't rehearse with the orchestra. 
And so during that three-week period, or the conductor spends every day in a room with the pianist, with the assistant conductor who sits there and takes notes and, and, and does different tasks, and the director, the stage managers, the cast, the crew. It, it, it's different in different schedules, but in San Jose, for example, a week and a half before opening, the orchestra arrives, and the conductor will have a few rehearsals with just the orchestra. And then the, uh, things will move onto the stage. At the last week or so, it, this is true everywhere, you will finally see the set on the stage, and you will see the orchestra in the pit after you have the final piano dress, which is the end of the piano. The piano dress is often with costumes on the stage, piano playing in the pit, the whole opera is rehearsed back to forward or, or run, and then the orchestra arrives and you'll have something called a zitz probe where the singers will sit on the stage and they will sing through the whole opera back to front. With the orchestra. Correct. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you will have a dress rehearsal uh, mostly, but if it's a complicated work or a long work, these or new work, these things will be a little different. Sometimes you'll have something called a probe, which is uh, you're kind of walking around on the stage, but you're not necessarily in your costumes. But it all leads to a dress rehearsal, a final dress rehearsal, which is the whole performance run start to end with no stop, usually in front of a select audience. And then about four weeks after the first rehearsal, you will have opening night and a series of performances. San Francisco and San Jose both do about five or six performances, except for the Met. That is a that is like the longest run you would get outside of a of a of a festival environment. Usually, companies do between two and four performances. Uh, a music director does that, but they are the musical authority of uh, of an institution. They are linked with an institution. They uh, have a say in what the casting is, in what the titles are, in who the directors are. They audition the orchestra and uh, the, the people involved. They appoint people to the orchestra. So a music director is a conductor who's also uh, manages the musical aspects of an organization. And uh, a gigging musician uh, gets offered a title uh, or place and they accept it or not. The music director gets to choose what, in my case, what operas I want to do, who I'd like to invite to conduct other operas. And there's a lot of other, there's a lot of donor events that you go to, a lot of budget meetings that you go to, a lot of things outside specifically conducting. But as a kind of managing director of an organization, that is part of your portfolio of what a, a music director does. And at any point in those earlier, I want to be an opera, I want to be a conductor, because that's what, when you found out there was a, such a thing as a conductor, that's what you wanted to be. Did you also aspire to this music director position, or did you not know it was there, or you... No, 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 I did. Yeah. It, okay. That, that was, is, in fact, what I wanted more than being a conductor. Uh -huh. Because uh, I like agency, and uh, I like to choose things, and I like to know what I'm going to do this year and next year. The gigging aspect is, uh, for me, as a source of anxiety. And, and titles, the specific titles of operas are in, important to me. I would rather conduct Don Carlo in San Jose than the Barbara Seville at the Met, for example.
to have that element of it's not so much control, it's um, release from anxiety, mm-hmm. from being able to know what I'm going to do and with whom is, and ha- and uh, not only being able to, but having agency in, in making that happen is something that is, uh, it becomes more important to my uh, mental and emotional well-being. Yeah, yeah. And, right, because you aren't out there gigging anymore and flying here to there and kind of on these ske- other people's schedules. Like you're you're doing it, thus the ability to have that family life that you didn't think was possible. So how has that, because you mentioned uh, you became a father at 45. That means you have a little, little, and that changes anybody's. Young father. (laughs) You're a young father. Nice. (laughs) Nice. So how does that change your perspective of the opera world or your role in it or uh, maybe even musical selections? Who knows? How has that changed things? Um, I wonder. uh, Is Hansel and Gretel on the docket? It's funny. that uh, We did Hansel and Gretel (laughs) and he came to see it. That was the first opera. (laughs) Awesome. A gingerbread onesie and we put him on and... uh, Oh, so yeah, obviously. I mean, that that that's one of my most favorite favorite operas uh, as it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's changed. I mean, it's obviously made me feel grateful for my arrangement because also sometimes you know the grass is always green and you think, well, I'm always here. I'd love actually to go uh, traveling again and because I, I I mean it's you can't not travel. I was in Santa Fe. I was in Miami. I was in New York. I mean, you go a lot to see other companies and other people and other singers and stuff like that. And so you go there and you you see what it's like and how nice it would be. Oh, I'd love to work in Miami for a month. That sounds like a great plan. I'd love to go to Hawaii, but that sounds like a great plan. But uh, it has made me more grateful to be here. I mean, during COVID, when everything was shut down, to have that kind of intense, long residency with your child <laughs> is uh, something I didn't anticipate and I very much appreciate it because I'm not a, a, a child person and I didn't think of myself as a child person. And my idea was like, well, when he's like five and starts talking, I'll <laughs> swoop, swoop in and I'll, I'll, I'll take it from there. But I'm not a baby person. I am a baby person, I guess. It's, it's, well, they start talking before five, so that's true. a nice I surprise. <laughs> I didn't know that. And they started like it. Well, I mean, I guess in Max's case, it was maybe two and a half. Two and a half, it kind of started. And obviously, it's not going to stop anytime soon. But I, you know, he sees me play the piano. and He sits and plays the piano. And I speak with some of my friends, and they are really into putting their children through some kind of uh, musical education and stuff like that. Not me. And, uh, I mean, I think there's no way to avoid it. I mean, I'd love for him to be conversant about opera and arts, but that sounds like a great thing to have as your second thing, but not as your, I'd love for him to do something totally different than what I do, because then he would have he would have the knowledge and the appreciation of the things that I have, without having to sacrifice himself to do it firsthand. And that that would be a great second skill to have, on top of whatever it is that he is uh, destined. 
to be. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure he will soak it up. There's no way not to. Um, and did you say your husband's also in the arts? Uh, he was. He Up until COVID, he was a stage director, and we worked at San Francisco. And when COVID came, he had a dress rehearsal at Utah Opera for Barbara Seville, and they canceled it after the dress rehearsal, and that was the oh. end. And he was uh, concerned about, you know, he's a lot, he's 35, I'm 47, eight. And not that I would have chosen a different path, but even if I wanted to, I, my, my period is a little, I'm, I'm committed to what I am and who I am. But he wanted to keep that option open and he went to advertising school. In June, he went to Cannes, he won an award at the uh, Cannes Advertising Festival and that kind of solidified the change. He, he's in an environment in which he feels extremely valued and appreciated and probably that dynamic of being as, as, as valuable to something as something is valuable to him. And I imagine that that is the direction that he is going to go from now on. And I am absolutely thrilled for that. They're there. They tell you if there's anything that you can do other than going to the arts, do it. <laughs> yes, but it does sound as though it has been, for you, the the path that you knew it's interesting you just said that you you're committed to what i am and who i am and you've been this for a very long time in your soul and to find that that has worked and has afforded you this also this feeling of being as valuable as the experiences of value to you is really quite astounding and kudos to you for sticking it out even though there are times that you wanted probably to be like oh I've done this so much um, and I'm not really I don't love that feeling you've seen it through and it's it's pretty pretty cool thank you I mean it is a big part of my identity and it's tricky because I, uh, I, mean, I think a lot of people's jobs and careers carries a lot of the burden of defining them it's a tough because I think there's a, a lot more transitioning going on uh, in second careers and stuff like that that people have, and they, and they need to be open to that, and they need to be able to see themselves in all kinds of different roles and ways in order to find happiness. That really is a, an important thing. And, I lament that I don't, I, I mean, I, I, I really can't imagine what else I would do. And it's such a central part of my self-conception. And uh, when Jimmy switched over, I mean, we've talked about that a lot. Because when you do that, you, you really give institutions, other people, things, a say, a veto over your life and over your options and the, the consequences that you will you allow those limitations to be placed and you have committed yourself to something that isn't entirely in your control so long as those things if they're intention but they don't break that's that's fine but as a rule you you shouldn't put yourself in a position in which your self-concept and your happiness is in something that you can't control. I, I don't endorse that. I don't, I don't recommend that, but I don't think I 
understood. I mean, I always knew that being a musician was comically difficult, not as difficult as being an actor, but uh, up there, up there. And I often have conversations in my head with my younger self. And I think my if my younger self, if I went to myself at Dartmouth, if I went to myself at any point, and I was like, okay, Joe, here I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm 48 years old. This is my life. My a younger self would be like, you must be the happiest person in the world. I can't believe I can't. This is so great. I don't have to worry for the next 20 years if that's what I'm going to end up at, at 48. And I remind myself that a lot because it's you you lose that perspective. Yeah. You focus you very easily on things that you don't have or that you're missing or that you feel that you deserve. And um, on one hand, you don't want to lose that either because you don't want to be static. You uh, uh, don't want to settle. But keeping those different perspectives balanced is really a, a daily, sometimes, uh, I, don't know, I think challenge is overstating it, but uh, a daily exercise. And so when people ask, you know, how are you? You know, it's you. It, uh, uh, it's 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 hard to answer in a way that isn't facile, but not yet. If you take too long, then they're like, "Oh my God, I shouldn't have asked." <laughs> right. That kind of assessment is it, you. It really is something that you have to work through and synthesize in a way that puts you in the best position. And of course, when you're a parent, then you're like, all right, I have to start modeling positive behavior. I have to to, to show and demonstrate how you navigate the vicissitudes of happiness and disappointment. Yeah, it doesn't have to be positive. It just has to be authentic, right? It doesn't have to be positive. It has to be authentic. Which doesn't have to be positive. It has to be authentic. What you're, you're, what you're putting out there as the model. You know, you said you have to model positivity. Well... Is it really positivity, or you need to model authenticity? Uh, well, <laughs> Maybe some days it's just positivity. I get it. I get it. Well, you want to be like, you too can cope. You too can find the silver right. lining. Right, right. This whole uh, experience. And, um, and a lot of it is, as I, I, I feel as, as, as I get older... Because you think, well, I'm going to discover this truth. I'm going to learn this thing. And that is going to help me put life in context. And as I get older, I feel that um, that real wisdom or the valuable wisdom is not gained by learning something new necessarily, but by recognizing the truth of something that you already know. And I feel like most of the things we need to know, we've known for a very long time, but we we haven't understand the implications of what it is, what it means to know that, and to recognize the consequences that that, that knowledge should lead you to. There's no other thing that you don't know that if you knew, mm. Like, oh, well, how come it took me so long to know that? You know these things. You just have to recognize the truth of what it means to know these things. Don't don't look under the rock for something that's going to get you out. 
of, of, of this dynamic. Wow. Right? Okay. So if you need to do a pivot, Joe, I think you're just going to pivot into like life guru because that oh. is really, <laughs> really deep stuff, but right on, right? We know, particularly at this stage in our lives, yes. there's so much that we know and we just need to reflect on that, that, okay, we've known it all along. What are we, what's obfuscating that, right? What can we shed to get to this thing that is probably the the key to our recognition of this is pretty good or this is the, the next direction I need to go. Sometimes I find myself repeating cliches, not just saying them in earnest and then be like, oh my God, that's a cliche. And then I think, of course, I mean, that's why it's a cliche. <laughs> the prevented me from seeing the actualness that, that that's why that's a cliche. All the things you know, you've already known, they're all cliches. Right. But let the cliche block you from understanding what it means to know. Right. Well, it seems as though you you have your head on straight and now you get to impart that to somebody little and it's exciting. And we will just see where your life takes you and all the good things that you get to create. And we're we're just so happy that you've shared all this with us today. Thank you so much for being part of it. My pleasure. That was maestro Joseph Marquezo, a world-class conductor most recognized for his affiliation with Opera San Jose, where he has served as music director since 2014. He's also been a member of the conducting staff at San Francisco Opera and boasts an extensive and impressive repertoire of over 60 operas. Though he still travels to many of the world's opera houses, he lives in Berkeley, California with his husband and their young son. Find out more about his latest musical adventures at josephmarquezo.com. Of course, you can find a lot of other adventures, from research trips to the Arctic to navigating unexpected diagnoses, at rosetakenshow.com, where the full archive of all of our shows resides. Whatever your taste for adventure, there's something for you there each week with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on Roads Taken.